Good morning. It's good to see you, uh, and it is just great to be with you this morning as we continue our sermon series in the book of Acts. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is John, privileged to be the youth pastor here at Central, and I'm thankful that today I get to spend some time with you uh, exploring what God has for us. Uh, to start our time off, I actually want to kind of pick up our conversation from last week where we talked about miracles, and I want to share with you a story of when I was 18 years old. Uh, when I was 18 years old, I spent uh, my summers, actually as a teenager, I spent about six summers working up at a Bible camp uh, where for the summer I was tasked with the responsibility of taking care of a, a group of kids um, and helping lead activities. Uh, and this one particular week, I got assigned to assist and, um, and help in my, what I would say is my least favorite activity, which was mountain biking. Now, if you don't know me, I'm not the greatest with things that require hand-eye coordination. Uh, matter of fact, I'm terrible, which is one of the reasons why I didn't like mountain biking, because uh, I don't have depth perception. Uh, and I've been known to be biking on perfectly smooth, straight pavement, uh, and then somehow still end up over my handlebars, okay? Uh, now, this one particular day, my cabin of guys uh, signed up to go mountain biking, which meant that I was going to be their activity leader. Uh, and um, they had this running joke. They were about four or five years younger, younger than me, and they had this running joke that I was the old guy. Uh, and so I consciously decided that I'm going to prove these guys uh, that I am the best, right? And so uh, we go up and we start our run, and, and right out of the gate, I pick up as much speed as I possibly can because I want to impress these guys. And I, I hit the first jump, and I land perfectly, uh, which only did one thing, which was make an 18-year-old a little more arrogant, and I remember that about halfway down the run, uh, that there was this sh uh, sharp turn into a left and then into a jump, uh, but I was going way too fast. And so I slammed on my brakes to slow myself down, but in my attempt to slow down, I made a critical mistake that resulted in the back end of my bike kicking out from me. And as I hit this jump, I knew what was going to happen. I was going to crash hard, and I wasn't just going to crash into ferns and to the sticks on the ground. I was actually going to hit the tree that was right beside the jump. And so you can guess what happens. I, I hit this tree so hard. Um, and in the process, my knee slams into this tree, uh, causing me the most extraordinary pain. And I crashed so bad that the guys that I was with had to carry me out of the bush and bring me to the nurse's station. And as I sat in the nurse's station, my knee had turned to a dark purple. It was swollen to about double the size that it should have been. I couldn't walk. I couldn't bend it. And, and I knew that, uh, that there was nothing that the camp could do for my, my pain. And so I, I knew I was going home. And sure enough, that's what the nurse said. The nurse said that I had probably broken my kneecap. And so they gave me a pair of crutches. They called my parents. And I hobbled to the dining hall for one last meal with my guys where I told them I had to go home. And I remember at one point, uh, before we finished dinner, that these guys were like, John, we need to pray for you. And I'm like, okay, here I am as this Mennonite brethren kid. I, I, healing was so out of my like, perspective of God. And, uh, and these guys started to pray for me. And, and I just, I didn't know what to do, so I just stared at my knee, and I said, God, would you please, please make it so that I can stay at camp? And as these guys prayed, I looked at my knee, and I could see the bruising disappear. 
I saw right in front of me my knees shrink as if someone had put a pin into a balloon. And after finished praying, I, I sat up in my disbelief, or I sat, I sat in my disbelief, and I stood up at the table and I said, guys, look at my knee. Look at what happened. And there was this, this excitement about what had happened. And later on that evening, um, yeah, God, I, I mean, God had healed my knee, and, and uh, for the first and only time in my life, I experienced physical healing. And, uh, and the response of my cabin and the response of the nurse and the response of those who saw me and saw my pain was that they just stood there and they said, what just happened? Well, today we're going to pick up a story where we left off last week and we're going to look at how Peter himself responds after the healing of a lame man. And, and we're going to look at how he responded when he was really asked the question, what just happened? And what we're going to discover is that whenever a miracle happens, whether that be physical, whether that be spiritual, emotional, that we have to give credit to the God who heals, and that we have to take the opportunities presented to us by the Holy Spirit to point others to Jesus because miracles are signs pointing to the deeper truths of Jesus. Uh, C.S. Lewis, author of Narnia, would say it this way. He said, miracles are the retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters that are large, or, or they're too large for some of us to see. Okay? Miracles are about Jesus. And what we're going to discover in our passage is that as Peter responds to the crowd— that he takes response or takes opportunity to tell the grand story of the gospel. And, and what we learn in Peter's response is that to proclaim the gospel, we must talk about three things. We must make it so much about Jesus. We must uh, confront sinners with the issue of their sin. And we must offer God's grace to those who hear. And so today, we're going to essentially spend some time talking about evangelism. Now, evangelism is the commitment to or the act of publicly preaching or talking about Jesus with the intention to share the message and the teaching of Christ. And one of the things that I love about Peter was that upon, his, uh, upon Jesus' death and resurrection, something radically changed in his life that he, all of a sudden he had this boldness and this tenacity to preach about Christ and to take every opportunity presented to go, here's an invitation for you. You see, it is in this moment of healing that Peter, a transformed person himself, simply seizes the opportunity to explain the miracle and to talk about these three important aspects of evangelism. And so with that, let's jump into Acts 3 this morning, and let's explore our first point, which is it's all about Jesus. Our story this morning starts off, and as a recap, it says that there was a lame man. You see, for this man's whole life, he was bound and limited by his physical disabilities. Everything in his life was defined in the context of his limitations. And daily, he would have someone take care of him. Daily, he would have someone bring him to the temple gates. And daily, he would sit and beg for money, seeking charity from those around him so that he could provide for himself. And our text tells us that this man had been lame since birth, which makes the miracle even more incredible. Acts 4 tells us that this man was roughly around 40 years old and that his whole life, all he knew was his disability. All he knew was his brokenness. 
And so there he sat at the temple gates, simply wanting to be supported in the condition that he was in. But listen, right? As we read this story, we discover that on this day, God had something so much better in mind for him. You see, Jesus wanted to completely change his condition. And that's when Peter and John walk into the story. And what we're told is that this man fixed his eyes on them just as he did everyone else because he was seeking charity. But little did he know that that interaction with John and Peter would result in his life being radically transformed and turned upside down. And so I want you to imagine the scene for a second. Peter and John come by. The man looks at them. He asks for help. And Peter and John just respond. They say, you know what? We don't have money. But what we have is so much better. Okay? Instead, they tell this man, put your faith in Jesus. Rise up and walk in the name of the Lord. And so they grab him and with, his, with their right hand and they lift him up. And our text tells us that immediately his feet and his ankle bones receive strength. Okay, how crazy is that? Forty years this man has laid on a mat on the ground and now he's walking and jumping. And I want you to imagine that if you were a part of the crowd of people, how would you respond right? Well, he hung on to the apostles, and he enters the temple with them for the first time as he's walking, leaping, and praising the God who healed him. But what we're told in verse 11 is that all the people, all the people in that area were utterly astounded. They were astounded because this man was a fixture outside the temple, Okay, and so our text tells us that there was this this massive urgency by the crowd to hear what had happened. And what we're told is that this, this massive crowd of people actually run together to the portico of Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And he says this, he says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or or piety that we have made him walk. You see, it is in this moment that Peter, a transformed person himself, simply seizes the opportunity to explain what happened. You see, what he wants to do is he wants to direct people's attention away from himself and for the crowd to place their attention to the source of the miracle. You see, Peter knew that that saving faith did not come by seeing or experiencing or hearing about a miracle, but rather by trusting and placing faith in the author of the miracle. You see, he wanted them to place their trust in a resurrected Jesus that they themselves had witnessed. And so Peter knew that how could people call for help if they didn't know who to trust? And how could they know who to trust if they hadn't heard of the one who could be trusted? And how can they hear if nobody tells them? And how is anyone going to tell them unless someone is sent to do so? And so Peter wisely takes advantage of the situation and the gathering crowd because he knew that the miracle itself brought no one to Jesus. It merely made people curious and interested 
And although they were greatly amazed, there was still a bigger miracle that, that God had for the people. And that was that they would experience salvation at the sound of the good news. And so the first thing that Peter reminds us is that as we evangelize and as we preach the gospel, as we live this out, is that we have to make much of Jesus and less of ourselves, because Jesus is the sum and the center of all that we believe. Uh, Listen to how Peter starts his conversation in Acts 3, verse 13. He says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. Now, this may not be meaningful to you, but this was a radical statement that would grab the heart of those that were listening. You see, Peter was wanting the crowd to understand who Jesus is because when we know who Jesus is, it helps us appreciate what Jesus does. The the Gospel Transformation Bible would say it this way, as people marvel at the power of the apostles, Peter immediately renounces praise and redirects their gaze to Jesus Christ because everything is about Jesus. Peter insists that this miraculous healing is the word of the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and here's the issue, is that many people have misconceptions or don't know who Jesus really is. Now, we don't have a lot of time this morning, but let me say this, that there is no one more loved and more hated than Jesus Christ. The name Jesus is derived from the Old Testament named uh, named Joshua, which means Yahweh, God, is salvation. And the title Christ means one chosen and anointed by God to be the Messiah who delivers God's people. You see, God became man in Jesus Christ, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died in our place on the cross. And three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he was the Son of God. This is what Peter had witnessed. This is what Peter had lived in. This is what others would have seen, because Jesus appeared to hundreds of people, all right? And so Jesus, or sorry, Peter is saying that that this is the Son of God, and it is the Son of God who offers the gift of salvation and forgiveness to anyone who repents and believes, And so when Peter mentions the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the the God of your fathers, he's reminding the crowd that God is a God of promise and a God of covenant, and that God is and will fulfill his side of the deal to bless the whole world through a promised Messiah. So just as this covenant was passed down from generation to generation, this was the promise that was presented and available for the crowd. Jesus was and is the promised Messiah. You see, Jesus was set apart, and he was glorified, and he was the suffering servant of all. As, as Peter's talking about this, the Jewish people would have gone to Isaiah 42, 43, 45, that tells us that here is a servant whom God has uphold. He is the chosen one in whom God delights. And it says that God will put his spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. This is what people would have known. Okay, And this is who the Jesus is that Peter's talking about. Jesus was more than just a mere human being who was killed and hung on a cross. He was God in the flesh. He was in front of the people. 
He was the one who had healed this man, his spirit. And what Peter is saying is that he is worth your focus and attention. So he is calling the crowd to say, look to Jesus. You see, what I admire about Peter's sermon was that the greatness of his sermon uh, wasn't that it was about him, it was about Jesus. And so the question that I have for you in your conversations with others, in light of the miraculous work that, that you see around you, how are you pointing others to the glorified Jesus? Because we have to point others to the resurrected Son of God. You see, our job as the church is, is to be, is we're chosen and we are to partner with God by helping bring about the, 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 or to help facilitate what the Spirit wants to do, okay? Because God longs for spiritual healing for every person. Our job as the church isn't to sit comfortably week after week in the confines of four walls in the church, but to actively, like Peter, point people to Jesus, 1 Peter 2 verse 9 would put it this way, as chosen people, we are to declare the excellencies of the one who called us from darkness into light. Okay? That's what we're called to. As called ones, loved ones, saved ones, we are to declare the excellencies of God. We're to point to Jesus. And you don't have to be a pastor to evangelize. You have to just talk about Jesus with others. You see, sharing the gospel should be the most natural thing that we do, but sometimes it's so hard. But here's the thing that we need to know. The gospel is the only thing that truly transforms and changes lives, and so we better speak about Jesus boldly. Later on in in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, Peter would write this. He goes, "'Our hearts revere Christ as Lord.'" Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. You see, we are Christ's ambassadors. Peter was Christ's ambassador, and we get the great privilege of making it all about Jesus. And so how are you doing what you've been called to as you go in the world and proclaim the gospel? We have to remember it's about what God did for us in Jesus. Secondly, in Peter's desire to make it all about Jesus, Peter also takes the opportunity in the midst of the big crowd to talk about the hard, ugly reality of sin in all of our lives. You see, Peter moves away from the physical healing of the lame man to address a bigger, more important issue at hand, which is the spiritual brokenness of the crowd. You see, what Peter's wanting to communicate in this moment is that if we seek physical healing without spiritual healing, it's like trying to remedy a terminal illness with a Band-Aid. Listen, the reality is is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is righteous, no, not one. It's the reason why we need Jesus. It's the reason why we need a Savior. And so here in this next section, Peter really wants to get a point across that, listen, the crowd's they've sinned. And without Christ, what becomes of your sins? They must be accounted for, and without Christ, they will all be accounted to you. I I love what Greg Gilbert uh, writes in his book, What is the Gospel? He says, it is so absolutely crucial that we understand both the nature and the depths of our sin. 
If we approach the gospel thinking that sin is something else or something less than what it really is, we will fail to understand the good news of Jesus Christ. So this is the very reason why Peter takes time to talk to the crowd about their sin. And if you don't know that there's an issue, how do you know what needs to be fixed? If you don't know what needs to be fixed, you're going to miss out on what actually fixes it, which is the gospel. If you don't know how to, how, what sin is or how to define it, you won't, you won't know what sin looks like in your life and why you need the good news. You see, sin is best described as this, that sin is a lot more than just the violation of some impersonal, arbitrary, heavenly traffic regulation. It is the breaking of a relationship. And even more, it's the rejection of God himself. It is a rejection of God's rule, of God's care, of God's authority, and God's right to command those to whom he gave life. But here's the thing that Peter knows about sin. Okay? He knows that we can fail to recognize sin in our lives. So he goes to the crowd and he says, "List." he says, you remember the glorified Jesus? You failed to honor God's Messiah and you are filled with sin that deserves judgment. He goes this, he says, you handed Jesus over to be killed. You disowned Jesus before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and the righteous one and asked that a murderer be released for you. And then he says this, you killed the author of life. Now, I don't know about you, but one of two things happens when we talk about sin. First is that in this situation that some people probably felt extremely guilty because they had a part to play in an innocent man's death. Maybe they were part of the crowd who shouted, crucify him. Maybe they were the religious leaders of the day. I'm not sure. But I know that when I'm called on my sin, that there is a big lump in my throat because I know that I've done something wrong or I know that I could have missed something and, and unintentionally did something wrong. But my guess is that part of the crowd was probably highly offended by being called on sin because they had nothing to do with Jesus' death because they weren't there. But here's the reason why we need to know the nature and the depths of our sin. The Bible teaches us that there is actually two ways in which we can sin. The first is what we could call a willful sin, which is best described as sinning deliberately, okay? And we all have those sins. We know which ones are the willful sins in our lives. Hebrews 10 verse 26 to 27 talks about that. But what Peter wants the Israelites to know is that they can also sin in their, in their ignorance, the reality is, is not everyone who was part of that crowd had a, a, a part in, in crucifying Jesus. But every one of them had forgotten something. They had forgotten what God had foretold by the prophets, that God would send a Messiah, and that he would suffer and die and rise again to fulfill God's promise and God's covenant. Peter goes on to tell the crowd that they acted in ignorance— to sin in ignorance is to not realize you're actually sinning. You, you didn't realize who Jesus really is because your eyes and your hearts and your mind were too blind to see who is in front of you. You see, it's our very nature to sin, and sometimes we don't even know that we're sinning. We're that good at it. But listen, Peter's heart is to deal with the fact that these people denied Jesus, both willfully and ignorantly. To deny Jesus, as Peter says here, is to leave a person subject to judgment. 
But here's the thing that I believe that Peter's trying to do. He wants them to think and to stop and to pause and to reflect on the reality that they are sinners in need of grace. That all of us, even here today, are sinners in need of God's grace. That all of us had a part to play in Jesus' death because of our sin. And I love this passage because Peter makes it clear that both the Gentiles and the Jews committed sin. You see, what I love about the way that that Peter interacts with the crowd is he puts us all on the same playing field. We're all on common ground, right? Without feeling the weight of our sin, we will never understand the gift of God. But I think sometimes in our pursuit to talk to others about Jesus, that that we focus completely on the sin and we forget the hope and forgiveness that we find in Jesus. Listen, even though the crowd had failed to honor God's Messiah and are filled with sin that deserves judgment, God nevertheless continues to call people to him. He calls us back into relationship with him. Okay? Okay? And so the question that I have for you is how are you helping others pause, reflect, and think about the big thing called sin? How are you sharing with others your own mistakes and tendencies to willfully and ignorantly sin against God? How does putting yourself in the same camp as your sinful neighbor help you have conversations that point to hope? I don't want you to hear me say that we ignore the weight of sin, but rather, we need to place our stories on the same level as everyone else's. Because the simple fact is, is that we are all wretched sinners, and everyone you meet all over the world is a sinner. Sinner is a, pres- a present tense description of everyone, including those who have put their faith in Christ. Of course, those who have called Jesus Lord are justified, meaning they are no longer guilty but it doesn't change the fact that that's our title. We're just redeemed. We're forgiven. But we still make mistakes. We still sin, willfully and ignorantly. And so let's never forget the weight of sin, but as we talk with people, let's also never forget that in sin there is forgiveness in Jesus our Savior. And so this is our last point, that only Jesus saves Okay? Peter, as he calls out the sinfulness of the crowd, never left the conversation telling the people how damned to hell they were. He never left them without hope. Rather, Peter addresses the deep issue of sin. He calls a spade a spade, and he calls the crowd into a place of repentance because this is the best place where we can lead people into the invitation of God. You see, the proper response to sin is deep, full, true, broken, devoted, tearful, prayerful, and continual humble repentance. And Peter spoke boldly to the crowd about their sin, but he didn't just want to make them feel bad. That's not his goal. The goal was to encourage them to repent and to see for themselves the incredible gift that is given to us in Jesus. And so Paul ends his sermon with a word of hope, and it's a word of hope that comes through the repentance of sins and a a word of hope that comes because of the gift of God. You see, Peter's call to repent is the most hopeful and encouraging word in the whole sermon. He says, repent therefore and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. Here's the thing that he's saying. 
God's giving us a chance. Do we deserve it? No, but he does it out of his love for us. The result of repentance is forgiveness of sin. And when Peter says that your sins may be blotted out, it's the idea of wiping ink off of a document or erasing the ledger of debt. Now, I grew up, my dad was a printer, my grandfather's a printer, my brother's a printer, my sister works at a print shop, my mom works at a print shop, so we kind of know this ink thing well. And I remember early on when I was a kid asking my dad, why does ink stick to paper? And he goes, well, the reason why is because there's acid in it, and it bites into the paper. Well, back in the day, ink didn't have the acid in it. So if you made a mistake, you could take a, wipe, uh, a wet rag, and you could wipe it off, and it would be perfectly clean. That's what he's saying here. When, when Peter says blot it out, it's the idea that, that, that the ink doesn't bite, that if we make a mistake, that it can be wiped clean. And what Peter's saying to the crowd is you can be forgiven of your willful sins and you can also be forgiven of your, your sins of ignorance. Your record can be wiped clean and you can be made new with a new lease on life. You see, it is through repentance that we experience the forgiveness of God and the restoration and the renewing that God has for us. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that even the ones who ignorantly denied Jesus and even the person who willfully took part in Jesus' death could be forgiven of their sins and their unrighteousness. And I don't know about you, but as I read that this week, I was like, man, that is incredible news. Because if I can, if I can be a part of killing the Savior of the world and still be forgiven, that must be good news. Amen? Even though we don't deserve it, God makes a way for people to be forgiven. And if God can forgive those who are responsible for his son's death, how much more can he forgive us? How much more can he forgive our neighbors, our coworkers? The only thing that's required is belief and faith and repentance in Jesus. Paul Washer says it this way. He says, repentance is simply giving up to stop fighting against God and to stop attempting to gain our own salvation through our own works. It's literally to give up and to fall upon Christ. That is salvation. You see, we have to trust and know that we can rely on the work of Jesus and what he's done on the cross. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5 verse 8, But God demonstrated his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it's not too late to repent. Listen, the reason why the gospel is so important is because hell is real, but the gift of God is everlasting life. And God is giving us chances daily to ourselves uh, to experience this and to invite others to also experience this. This is the greater miracle that God is longing to do. You see, it's through Jesus because he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one experiences the Father unless they go through him. And the reason why Peter brings it back to Jesus again is because only Jesus saves us from our sins. Only Jesus saves us from death. Only Jesus saves us from Satan. And only Jesus saves us from God's wrath and hell. And this is the message that the world needs to hear. This is the word of hope, your neighbor, your family members, your coworkers. It's a word that maybe you need to hear today. 
Listen, more now than ever, we need to help people know how to repent and, and to look to Jesus, and it starts with our own continual repentance of our sins. You see, sometimes I think in our goal of evangelism that we paint ourselves as this perfect and rosy person when really, in reality, our lives are still messy and sinful. But if we expect people to repent, maybe we need to start looking at our hearts first and explain why we need to keep going back to the cross so that we can help others understand how incredible it is. You see, repentance isn't a one-time and thing and you're done. It is a continual thing that requires you to acknowledge your sin, to confess your sin, to ask forgiveness from your sin, to turn away from your sin, and to restore the wrong that you have done. You see, a changed life comes only by the way of repentance. And spiritual healing comes only by the way of repentance. Peter's call to the nation of Israel was repent, therefore, turn back. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed to you. You see, Jesus is, or Peter is telling us that the, the guilt, uh, to, uh, sorry, that guilt is to the spirit what pain is to our body. But through the act of repentance, all guilt, all shame, all hurt, all sin is forgiven, and the result is a refreshing of our souls and everlasting life. You see, repentance should result in the taste of goodness, and it should refresh our soul because the weight of sin is gone. One of my favorite preachers is a guy named A.W. Tozer, and he said this. He said, Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness and has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace, and I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray, so that I may know thee indeed, and begin in mercy a new work of love within me, and say to my soul, rise up, my loved ones, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and to follow thee from the misty lowlands where I have wandered so long. Here's the reality, folks, is that those, aren't, those that don't know Christ are walking in the misty lowlands. And they will continue to walk in the misty lowlands unless we go and share the good news of Jesus. Listen, here's the great thing that, that God is doing. He's still giving opportunities for us and for those around you to recognize the gift of life in Jesus. You see, Peter, he, he recognized the urgency and the responsibility to point other people to Jesus. And in 2 Peter 3, verse 9 to 10, he said this. He said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, right now, Christ is still giving us opportunities. But he will come again. And there is an urgency in us, the church, proclaiming the gospel. There is an urgency to take every opportunity that we have, whether that's as a kid in an elementary school or whether that's as an adult. 
right? His hope, Peter's hope, the reason why he could stand boldly and share with people is because he did not want to see anyone perish because God does not want to see anyone perish. And it is the reason why he has called us and prepared us for good works to do. God longs to save the world, and it starts with us being bold. It starts when we point people to Jesus, who is the hope and the light in the midst of despair. And it starts when we address the ugliness of sin and brokenness, and when we help facilitate the miracle that the Spirit wants to do in the salvation of souls. Listen, when I was 18 years old, I had a radical encounter that resulted in my healing. And that summer, I boldly proclaimed Christ because I had seen him work in the most miraculous way. But the bigger miracle wasn't the healing of my knee. It was the lives that were transformed as I used my testimony and my story and my encounter with God and to encourage others to look to Jesus, to deal with their sin, and to place their hope in Jesus through repentance. God has always used miracles to attract people to Jesus Christ. And today, as we prepare to leave, one of the greatest miracles that I want to remind you of is your own story. What God has done what he is doing, and how he has transformed your life. Listen, we live in a day of urgency, and we need to be bold as we proclaim Jesus. Be bold in how we live, how you live your life, so that others will see the resurrected Jesus. The best, the best miracle is your miracle, what God has done. And Agassiz needs to hear that. So be bold. God's purpose of, of you, God's purpose and responsibility of you is to bring people to him and allow the, the, the Spirit to do what the Spirit's going to do. So let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. God, thank you for your church. Thank you that we could be encouraged by this word. And I just, God, I, I just wanted to say thank you for the miracles that you have, uh, you have done in the people that sit in this room. And I just pray that we would, we would use our stories and our testimonies and our experiences to share to a neighbor, to care for a coworker, to talk, to have a, a conversation with a family member. Lord, would we take those opportunities as you present them to us, and would we be faithful to honor you well? We pray this in your name. Amen.